Hello and welcome to Unorthodoxy Podcast number 21. I started in episode 20 with a series that I'm doing in mimetic theory. I want to cover this incredible, dynamic, diverse, just uh, illuminating theory that was developed by René Girard on the way that desire functions and the way that it helps us to understand ourselves and the world. And in the last episode, I talked about what mimetic desire really means. And if you get lost in this episode, I would definitely recommend that you go back to episode 20. Have a listen to that. I do explain some foundational concepts. And those build build up to this one. In fact, each each episode in the in the series is going to build on the previous one. So uh, it would be good for you to listen to them in order, unlike my other ones, which, which pretty much you can listen to in any order. So in this episode, I want to look at rivalry and how desire and mimetic desire illuminates how we understand rivalry. It's helpful to know, and this is a great way to start uh, this, that mimetic theory is a structural theory of some kind. It's looking at structures, the way that desire structures ourselves, our, our contexts, how it structures culture and the world. It began as a literary theory. When Girard wrote his book, Deceit, Desire, and the Novel, this is really how he developed the idea. Um, This is back in 1961 that the English version of Deceit, Desire, and the Novel was printed. But then mimetic desire became this other animal as Girard developed his ideas. He moved into anthropology and then theology and then cultural studies. And then mimetic theory has just grown and grown and grown. It's just amazing. There's in fact a a, a wonderful journal called Contagion, a journal of violence, mimesis, and culture. I've published one article in that. Um, It's just uh, a lot of scholars looking at Girard's theories and figuring out what those theories mean for how we understand the world. Girard would say that mimetic theory is scientific because it applies to reality as much as it does to literature and anthropology and all of those things. The fundamental aim of mimetic theory is to examine the relationships between people and things. In fact, one way of understanding this is is to look at mimetic theory as a theory of culture. And this is what we need to understand because we're always looking at contexts and affects and meanings, and all of these things are relational concerns. Theology is certainly a relational concern. There's no such thing as a theology that is detached and objective. There's always some kind of very potent subjective element that has to be addressed if we're to if we're to understand theology properly. Human beings are relational beings. And the best way to understand, I think, this relationship, the this relationality, is to understand the nature of mimetic desire. All desire is borrowed. Roberto Fendeli, in his book Mimetic Politics, writes that a desire is imposed on the subject by an external order of force that dictates what the subject wants to desire. I'm going to read that again. It's so brilliantly put. A desire is imposed on the subject by an external order of force that dictates what the subject wants to desire. He also says human behavior is gregarious and derivative, never authentic. That's that's quite a negative seeming thing he's kind of saying that we're we're never really ourselves we are kind of always our others if that makes any sense we we sort of don't generate our own authenticity to use existentialist language we're always relying on 
on others to be ourselves. Uh, when he says that human behavior is gregarious, sorry, I know that's a bit of a, an odd word these days. It just means that we're fond of company. Mimetic desire indicates a fundamental unity. Um, one way to understand this unity is to look at something like the bystander effect. The bystander effect is, there have been experiments done on this where, say, a beggar will be, or a guy pretending to be a beggar will be complaining of, you know, having a stomach ache or something, and the people around him in a crowded space will not respond for whatever reason. They just don't respond. Um, the bystander effect explains this, that there is an unconscious group rule that tells people to to live and function as the majority does. But if one person addresses that pretend beggar slash guy who is, is struggling, everyone else will suddenly be very keen to help. You can actually also look at this in the way that cults work or peer pressure or sports events or academic seminars. I mean, there's always this unifying element that is created through this mimetic desire. So desire is something that unifies the self. That's something I spoke about in the previous episode. But it's also important to see that all gathering happens around desire. So I'm hoping, I mean, one of the reasons I have some listeners out there, you guys, is that you share my desire to engage in the world, I think, in, in specific ways. And even where we disagree, I'm, I'm hoping that that shared desire to figure things out is something that will still create some kind of unity. It's also important to realize that mimetic theory is very rooted in science. It, it looks very much at, at mirror neurons, and I would recommend that you, at the very least, uh, listen to it or watch a TED talk, uh, TED.com. V.S. Ramachandran uh, has this wonderful talk on mirror neurons. The, the talk is called The Neurons That Shaped Civilization. So that's really well worth watching. And I think you will see when you when you watch Ramachandran talk about his work, that there is a very strong element of of mimetic desire there because that's what's going on. So J.M. Ugulion in his book, The Genesis of Desire, writes that desire is at the heart and the energy of the relation to the other, the first movement that carries us towards life. It is indeed desire that humanizes us, that impels us to unite with each other, to associate with each other, to assemble into groups, and also, as we will see, to resemble each other. Desire leads us to seek out the company of others, their approval, their friendship, their support, and their rec recognition. So we see this incredible unifying power in desire. In desire. What desire is capable of doing is it brings us together. But mimetic desire is also the source of all conflict. When we look at at mimetic theory, we're looking at unity, harmony, but we're also looking at conflict. In fact, as you will see, we're also looking at violence. So there is a unity and a disunity, and both of these are rooted in mimetic desire. Ugulion later on in the Genesis of Desire writes that desire can also be accompanied by rivalry and hatred. It can be a can abound both love and violence. Desire can be our greatest ally, but also our worst enemy, driving us to wish for what will destroy us, to pursue what will cause us suffering, while we remain unable to understand it or figure out why it is happening. 
And this is the reason why in the previous podcast, I, I wanted to ask this question of why do we want what we want? If we can understand that, I think that we can start to understand why we act in the ways that we do, why we sometimes do things that are not good for us. So to see how desire functions to create and destroy unity, it helps to understand how we relate to authority. A great example of how authority works is Stanley Milgram's Dynamics of Hierarchical Relationships Experiment. It's also known as Milgram's Experiment. Essentially, the experiment involved three people, and and then the, this would be repeated with different people. There would be a teacher, actually, that so that person would always be new to the experiment, the learner, supposedly new to the experiment, and then the experimenter. That, that would be the only constant. And what would happen is that the, the teacher was instructed to teach the learner a set of words, and it was supposed to be a memory test of some kind. And the teacher would be in one room, and the learner would be in another room. And then the teacher would ask the learner questions. And if the learner got a question wrong, the teacher was instructed by the experimenter to give the learner a shock. So in front of the teacher, there was actually a machine that he would or she would press, press down buttons and give the learner a shock. And the learner would then, because he was shocked, cry out in agony. And the teacher would then often say to the experimenter, I would like to stop this. This is this is really monstrous. Why are you making me do this? And the experimenter would then just say to the teacher, you must continue. The experiment requires you to continue. There's a great film, Experimenter, which, which records this in, in dramatic form. And um, the machine in front of the teacher went from very low voltage right to incredibly high voltage. And then on this machine, um, machine itself, there was a, a sign be beneath a high voltage that said danger, severe shock. So what's strange is that so many people complained about this, and yet te the teacher would be told by the experimenter every time, you must continue. The majority of teacher role people would keep going right up to very high voltage, even when the learner was screaming in agony. Now, some of you already know this, but the learner was an actor, and he there was no one getting an electric shock. But the teacher didn't know this, and yet would continue to do this. Now, Milgram developed this experiment because his parents were uh, Jews who were maltreated during the Second World War. I think uh, they, they, well, they were certainly in concentration camps. And Milgram was wanted to know uh, whether normal people, well, people in America would do this versus people, say, in Germany. And what he discovered is uh, something that he records in his book, The Perils of Obedience, in 1974. He writes, ordinary people simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part can become agents in a terrible destructive process. Moreover, even when the destructive effects of their work become patently clear and they are asked to carry out actions incompatible with fundamental standards of morality, relatively few people have the resources needed to resist authority. So for Stanley Milgram, 
authority itself is the explanation for for why people do terrible things, uh, for why things like apartheid existed or, or uh, you know, why Nazism existed. Milgrams felt, and, and his experiment co- confirmed this, that, that it was just the presence of authority that explained the fact that people behaved the way they did. But I don't find that explanation entirely satisfactory. I think Gerard's explanation is much more powerful. Authority is a consequence of mimetic desire. Namely, desire is borrowed. And authority is someone whose desires seem worth imitating, whether consciously or unconsciously, because we're all looking for a mediator. We're all looking for mediators. This is why people spend so much time on social media, and this is why they select particular feeds and select certain people to follow on their social media feeds and not on others. Authority represents this fact that people's desires are mimetic. So authorities are typically associated with greater mimetic or gravitational pull than others who are not in power. That's that's quite significant, obviously. So so some people, because they have been given allotted this kind of authoritative uh, position, they seem to have a kind of greater mimetic pull. But authorities are given power by others, including their victims, as we can see in any kind of case of, of Stockholm Syndrome. Authority is something that people just naturally gravitate towards. And this this authority can be shifted, it can be dynamic, it can be something that, that exists as sort of equal relations of power, but it represents the fact that desire is mimetic. So when we're thinking of terrible events, uh, like apartheid, Nazism, or the 1950s witch hunts under McCarthy's rule, or various kinds of fundamentalism, uh, we're actually linking these, we can link these things to obedience, compliance, and conformity. All of these fall under the question of authority. What's fascinating about people is that they accept authority even when they don't agree with this. This is something that the philosopher Slavoj Žižek notes he's got this example of how people are polite even to incompetent superiors. I think there are two reasons for this. One is unconscious envy, which is the uh, King Louis song from the Jungle Book, I Want to Be Like You. There's this unconscious envy. People want to be like other people. But then under authority, there is also an, an unconscious fear, which is that I don't want to be scapegoated or victimized. So that these two things are both at play. People will be polite even to incompetent superiors because of envy and fear, a combination of these two things. People accept authority even when they don't agree with it because mimetic desire is stronger than reason. Uh, this is so important to notice. So, so it's very easy to think of mimetic desires, oh, desire is borrowed and reason can can somehow sort of undo this. But that's not true, because mimetic desire, the fact that we borrow desires of others, or the desires of others, is because we are not fundamentally reasonable creatures. This idea of human being as a kind of res cogitans, the, the reasonable being, uh, this thinking thing, that comes out of modernity. And recent phenomenological discourses and scientific experiments have basically proven that this is not true. We are fundamentally 
non-rational, not always irrational, but definitely non-rational. We, we operate at a much more embodied unconscious level than we do at the level of the conscious. And this is true of, of being infatuated with someone who doesn't treat you well. It does happen. People who are in abusive relationships, for instance, can often just adopt the desire of the other in such a way that they will stay with them even when that person is treating them badly. So, I mean, just giving it a little bit of thought, you, you can see that authority is determined by a few things. It can be determined by wealth uh, or stature. It could be social standing or fame. It could be determined by experience, uh, like the age of a person. Someone who's older might have more authority. Someone's charisma, it's, it's true. Some people are just more charismatic, and they carry this kind of automatic authority uh, and the sad thing is that maybe they actually have no legitimate other source, excuse me, uh, other source of authority, but they can be perceived as having authority in this way. The law is a source of authority. Occupation can be a source of authority. So, I mean, just think of basic occupations like a policeman. It's like you just drive better when you see the policeman around. Uh, a doctor immediately an authority on all sorts of things, even though they're, you know, alarming figures about how many doctors are, are frequently uh, under the influence of some kind of drug or chemical. Uh, plumbers are a very important part of society, but for some reason you don't associate them as having as much authority as, say, a doctor. And, I mean, obviously in the area of plumbing they have authority, but definitely not in the area of medicine. There are good reasons for that. Graphic designers in, in a lot of Western culture do not carry a huge amount of authority. And so they, they are eas easily sidelined by clients who have money and money talks. So money, as I've said already, wealth can be a source of authority. So what I think is that these, these things, I mean, there could be others that, that determine authority, but these things function as kinds of mimetic force fields because of how society has invested a kind of magical potency in such things. So there is a kind of magic that, that's at work. People just assume that the pastor is an authoritative uh, source of information for whatever reasons that they've come up with or reasons that they're not aware of, unconscious reasons. So a lot of the time, authority is an assumed thing. It's not necessarily reasonable, although it can be. There are two ways of understanding mimetic desire in the context of all of this stuff that I've, I've talked about authority. There is external mediation and there is internal mediation. These are two kinds of mediation. External mediation is, has a stronger sense of authority. The mediator is outside of one's circle of relationship. So, so mimetic desire exists between people who are somehow unequal in external mediation. There is a subordinate and then there is an authority figure. So a child imitating the desires of the hero, for instance, that would be external mediation. But what happens is external mediation can become internal mediation. So let's say the kid imitating the hero, the kid starting to actually do things like the hero and then eventually getting the skills of that hero. I don't know who this heroic figure is, but anyway... Uh, so the kid becomes like the hero. That would be external mediation. There's a kind of distance moving towards internal mediation. 
regarding internal mediation, Leonardo da Vinci had this to say. He said that a, a, a pupil is poor who does not surpass his master. So there's a sense in which external mediation, there's a gap uh, that gets closed. And then the mediator becomes someone within one's circle of relationships. Internal mediation refers to mimetic desire that exists between social equals. So you see this always, like a child imitating his friend's desire for a toy, or a teenager starting to see himself or herself as equal to a parent. Teenagers and parents have far more conflict than, say, smaller kids than par and parents. Why? Because there is a closing of the gap between the, these two types of mediation. Um, when when colleagues desire the same job. And you can see that in internal mediation, there's a very strong likelihood of conflict. There's not a guarantee of it, of course, but it is very likely because inevitably the model becomes a rival in mimetic theory. Michael Cohen puts it this way, it's so, so eloquent. Two hands reach, not quite simultaneously, for the same object. The outcome is bitter rivalry. When there is not enough to go around, conflict arises. And you can see this everywhere. So you can see it at Israel versus Palestine. There's a conflict over land. The two countries or the two people groups desire the same land. In ancient mythology, you have Trojans versus the Greeks. And they have a shared desire, Helen of Troy. You can see it in politics everywhere, two parties versus each other, or two political candidates, or whatever, or several political candidates. When, more, when people, more than one person, desires the same object, the chances are that rivalry is in it, inevitable. All politics is, in fact, in this way, dyadic. It means there are always doubles. Uh, Roberto Fendelic, sorry, Roberto Fendetti, in his book, Dyadic Politics, he says, Mimetic theorists believe that mimesis is the inherent rationality of agency, that social dynamics are inherently dyadic, and that all the ultimate realities in the study of society and politics are neither individuals nor collectives, but doubles. So what, what we notice here, and I think this is so significant, is that conflict is not the result of difference, but of similarity. There is a shared desire, and when you put this together with the fact that we are interdependent, we always function together, and when you put that together with the fact that there is a perception of a limited supply of, an, of a shared object of desire, the result is going to be conflict. Gerard writes this in Violence and the Sacred. He says, in human relationships, words like sameness and similarity evoke an image of harmony. If we have the same tastes and like the same things, surely we are bound to get along. But what will happen when we share the same desires? Only the major dramatists and novelists have understood and explored this form of rivalry. So when you think of conflict, don't think we have differences of opinion. The differences of opinion are masking something deeper, which is a shared desire. So what you have is, remember in mimetic theory, there's always a triangular structure of desire. There's the subject, the model, and then the shared object of desire. 
So the model offers a kind of double commandment, a double injunction, which is imitate me, but also do not appropriate my object. Be like me in one way, but also don't take my stuff, because if you do, there's going to be war. There has to be this kind of double injunction, because people don't want necessarily to be in conflict, unless it's good for their egos, which is problematic all on its own. So let's look at something as old as the Oedipus com complex. The Oedipus imitates his model, the father, in loving his mother. And so the model becomes the rival and then in some sense needs to be in some sense killed. So I'm using all of these. This is a very symbolic language. I'm not saying that that murder is absolutely essential. I, I think it's an appalling thing. And what mimetic theory is trying to do is, is expose us to the fact that often these conflicts, violence arises out of shared desire. And often that shared desire is, is something we don't see. And so when we see it, maybe we have a better chance of not go, moving towards conflict and murder and other uh, cr crimes, basically. So what we see is that desire brings about all human gathering. To have a subject desire the object of the model is to force some to share in the desires of the subject and others to share in the desires of the model. You have two people desiring the same thing, but then you will have the way that those two people cause a kind of gathering of mimetic desires. The one person will draw his own kind of group, his own kind of support. Let's call them Republicans. And the other one will gather his own kind of support. Let's call them Democrats. And then you have these rivals. So the conflict, though, is still around a shared desire, which is a desire for a particular kind of power. Let's look at uh, the suffragettes versus the patriarchy. This is a, a very old feminist movement. And, and Chesterton said something very interesting about it. He said, most feminists would probably agree with me that womanhood is under shameful tyranny in the shops and mills, but I want to destroy the tyranny. They want to destroy womanhood. That is the only difference. So what Chesterton notices, very interesting, is that in the early, in the first wave of feminism, there were these women who wanted to have some sense of a voice. They wanted to be able to vote. But what they did is they actually started becoming, in some sense, more manly, more like the men of their era. They, they wanted to em embrace more wholeheartedly what men were doing. So instead of, and I think, thankfully, you know, feminisms after the suffragettes have, have created a much more profound and nuanced discourse around, around what feminism really is. But it was significant that in the first wave, it was a rivalrous relationship. And the result was often that the women became much more like men in the way that they worked and, and in other ways. Now, that is a horrendous sim simplification, and I realize the complexities of that, that era and that, that discourse. But it is interesting to see the desire for the vote was this was originally a shared desire. Chesterton, by the way, has a lot more to say on the subject, but I'm not going to go into that right now. So you see this pattern in a lot of history. You, you see this underdog versus an authority, and the underdog can often be a mirror of the authority. I want to do something very <clears throat> silly or 
brave or ludicrous. And I want to say that maybe when we look at a conflict situation like the conflict between ISIS and the West, it's very easy to see ISIS as the opposite of the West, as it's, you know, it's total, it's trying to present something totally different. But what happens if there is actually a shared desire that links the two, that maybe ISIS in some sense mirrors the West? Maybe ISIS in some ways mirrors the violence of, of the American state. So that, I'm, I realize again, quite contentious, and I'm not trying to, to ruffle too many feathers, but what I am trying to say is you only have conflict when you have a shared desire. And I think it's far too simplistic to paint our enemies as totally other, as totally different from us, when in fact the thing that unites us and our enemies is a shared desire. So the, this pattern of the underdog versus authority mirrors authority either by exposing the violence of authority as a scapegoat or by reflecting that violence through rebellion or imitating it in some way. Maybe you could argue there have been movements where the underdog has exposed the violence of, of the authority. The early, early Christians did exactly that. They did not participate in the violence of the state. That is, they, they thought the idea of serving in Caesar's army was ludicrous and very anti-Christian. That changed as Constantine took over. So there are two things. There can be the exposing of violence of the authority. Or there can be the reflecting of that violence back to the authority. And I think in some ways, uh, more than, you know, there have been several scholars who've done this. They've, they've pointed out that in many ways, ISIS is a creation of the West, not just its opposite. So in short, what we have here is mimetic desire is the desiring of the desire of the model. But to set, to desire the desire of the model is to set oneself up as a model among models. I know this is maybe not a great way of phrasing it. So mimetic desire, I'm copying the desire of someone else. But when I do that, I'm actually setting myself up as another model who could be copied. And when we see this, we realize that gathering occurs around desire. At this point, we, we can't say exactly how culture is, has been formed, but what we can say is that culture involves this gathering around a shared desire. And this gathering, this gathering around the subject and the model sets up a potential for conflict. Every story you've ever watched in a film or a play or a TV series is propelled by conflict. And so the question to ask when you look at these things is, where does the conflict come from? It's a good film if it, if it suggests that the conflict is not just a spontaneous thing, but that it comes out of the novelistic truth of shared desire. You can see this in, in fantastic films like The Prestige, uh, Christopher Nolan's film in 2006. He, he's got a, it's a story of two friends. They're magicians, and they then become rivals. And Black Swan, you have a, a very stark, very brutal picture of a divided self, one part of which is modeled on another dancer. And so this divided self, in fact, is a self at rivalry with itself, but also with others. So there's a kind of escalation of rivalries. And 
a movie like the one that 100 foot journey which i think is a beautiful image of of rivalry that gets overcome there's a fierce rivalry between two restaurants over clientele shared desire for a, a set finite number of clientele and then there are movies more recently uh enemy and the double both movies of uh, that came out in 2013 they they dealt with this idea of rivalry around doubles literally people who look like other people so jesse eisenberg in in the double he plays him he plays the one character and another one who are quite different in character and in enemy uh, jake gyllenhaal plays two uh two characters who who then are in, enter into some kind of rivalrous relationship with each other that doesn't solve precisely everything around rivalry and so what i want to do in the next uh podcast is look at a bit of mimetic psychology it's going to be really fascinating because I think when we start to realize that psychology is interdividual rather than just individual, we we see things that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. Thanks again for listening. Uh, have a super day. Cheers.